Patterns are everywhere in Hollywood. I'm obsessed with them. And this one needs no explanation. Welcome to the Dolby Theater and the Oscars. It's 2016. Hollywood's Golden Night. Tonight's Oscars ceremony will follow a particular order that tracks the filmmaking process itself. Emily Blunt and Charlize Theron take the stage, not just to kick off the show with the first award of the night, but, in their words, to honor the craft of writing, people who push to tell stories that must be told. Highly original nominees for Best Original Screenplay. Straight Outta Compton, screenplay by Jonathan Herman and Andrea Berloff. Story by Esley Savage and Alan Wenkus and Andrea Berloff. The only award the film would be nominated for that night, an award it would end up losing, was an important one nonetheless. See, the rock star biopic had spent years lost in the desert, missing out on box office cash and glowing critical reception. Straight Outta Compton is the film that sets the record straight helping to pave the way for where the genre sits today. And if you saw the film on opening weekend in a packed theater like I did, you would have seen it coming. Straight Outta Compton was an event film, granting audience reactions I've never seen outside of Marvel movies. It's rare you see so many people excited to see a non-franchise movie these days, but that's exactly what happened when Straight Outta Compton premiered. And don't think movie executives didn't notice. Hollywood loves patterns. That's especially true when it comes to genres. If one film's successful, you can guarantee a dozen knockoffs and sequels and spin-offs and homages are coming down the line. It's a little tougher when a genre is dead, especially when it's due to a massive, publicly embarrassing bomb. So when I walked out of the theater and I heard people blasting NWA from their cars in the parking lot, I knew this film was special. Oscars or not, Straight Outta Compton was here to open the floodgates for a modern take on the Rockstar biopic. How do you revive something that's been dead for years? What process does the genre go through to get there? Does it finally evolve into something greater than the sum of its parts? Or does it return to the exact same tropes, unwilling to change and grow with its audience. Sometimes, it's exactly that. Sometimes, all it takes for a genre to come roaring back to the screen to make a gigantic comeback no one saw coming is time. Get on up, straight out of Compton, Bohemian Rhapsody. Three movies that showed Hollywood testing the waters with experimentation and new ideas for the Rockstar biopic formula before racing back to the comfort and familiarity of its favorite tropes with the biggest possible returns you could imagine. From Dog and Pony Show Audio, this is Don't Explain, an exploration of the film genres we love. I'm Will Saddleberg. Walk Hard might have flopped in theaters, but the folks in charge of making decisions in Hollywood about what movies do and don't get made, they knew about it. Of course, film's a slow-moving medium, 
it can take months to course correct. And that means the end of the aughts were filled with the quiet echo of a genre taking its last breath. The first sign that rock star biopics were done for appeared nearly a year after Dewey Cox lit up cinemas to mostly empty seats. On paper, Cadillac Records was the next big Oscars hit, following the same exact path set by Ray and Walk the Line. Telling the story of Chess Records and its main executive, Leonard Chess, Cadillac Records has everything you'd want out of one of these movies. It's got a star-studded cast. Adrian Brody, Jeffrey Wright, and goddamn Beyonce is in this. Its focus on an entire label means there's all sorts of potential for fans of classic R&B, jazz, and blues fans to come into the theater. And the December release date meant that it could play for Christmas audiences and awards voters alike. The demand that brought Ray and Walk the Line to success was gone, though. Cadillac Records received mostly positive reviews just as the biopics before it had, but it wasn't just shunned by the Oscars. It was ignored by audiences. With a $12 million budget, Cadillac Records failed to gross back what it cost to make, leaving theaters with just shy of $9 million worldwide. A little bit of Grammy attention, a single Golden Globes nom, but otherwise, Cadillac Records fell to the wayside of film history. 2009 saw two films covering two very different Gone Too Soon musicians. Notorious told the story of Biggie, hitting theaters in the middle of the January doldrums and managing to make back twice its budget. Despite that success at the box office, it earned a pretty big shrug from critics and just completely bypassed award circuits and festivals. Jamal Wooler did earn some praise for his performance as Biggie, though, a role he'd eventually return to in the years later Tupac biopic All Eyes on Me. Meanwhile, Nowhere Boy arrived in English theaters just in time for Christmas. The film covers John Lennon's teenage years, a story we were all dying to see made, along with his experiences with the Quarrymen before the eventual arrival of the Beatles. Starring a young, pre-kick-ass Aaron Johnson and directed by his now-wife, Sam Taylor, the film earned solid buzz from critics along with attention from the British Film Academy. But the movie didn't arrive stateside for nearly a year after its initial premiere in England, failing to make even $2 million in the US. Although the indie flick was a modest success worldwide, it didn't leave much of a mark. Finally, studios gave up the ghost. Audiences were about to dive headfirst into all sorts of new trends, not least of which was the explosion of superhero movies. 2010 was the year Iron Man 2 hit theaters, cementing the MCU as a staple of cinema. Disney premiered its Alice in Wonderland remake, grossing over a billion dollars and kickstarting a new trend of live-action reimaginings of its biggest properties. And in the wake of Avatar, every studio was chasing the 3D high, a format that all but required action flicks to make the most of that extra dimension. Just three years after Walk Hard had lampooned every element of the genre, it seemed like the Rockstar biopic was truly dead and gone. At the very least, those producers would have to go back to the drawing board. You gotta assume that every artist, no matter how big or small, dreams about their potential biopic. At least a little. Maybe a little bit of fan casting in their head. Which Oscar-ready actor would play them? 
their spouse, their parents, estranged or otherwise. In 2012, Mick Jagger wasn't thinking about who could play him in a future film depicting the story of the Rolling Stones. Although, like, come on, it's Harry Styles, the obvious choice. No, Jagger had just gotten his hands on a dormant screenplay for a film about the life of his late friend, James Brown. And to the rock legend, this was the story worth telling. It had been six years since Brown died, and his estate manager Peter Afterman had approached Jagger with a simple question. Would he be interested in working on a documentary about his friend and fellow musician? Jagger wasn't new to production. He co-founded Jagged Films in the 2000s, just as he premiered a documentary about himself, largely shot using a handheld camera during a single year of his life. But when Jagger found a script written by brothers Jez and John Henry Butterworth in the 2000s, he found himself considering a new path for the project. The documentary could work as a side project, but to bring justice to his friend and fellow musical pioneer, James Brown would need his own rock star biopic. The story of Get On Up starts more than a decade before that script's latest draft falls into Jagger's hands. In 2000, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard's production company Imagine Entertainment, the same company that would bring 8 Mile to life a couple years later, began to pursue the project, then titled Star Time, a title pulled from the opening of Brown's live shows. Stephen Beigelman, who retains a story by credit on the film, had prepared a script for the project before the Butterworth brothers were brought in for rewrites. At the peak of the Rockstar biopic, the film attracted massive talent. Spike Lee signed on to direct the film in early 2007, with the film now titled Superbad. A few months later, that name was taken and obviously didn't stick around. Meanwhile, the project stalled out amidst licensing issues with Brown's music. With the slow death of the Rockstar biopic finishing up the decade, Get On Up was backburnered by Imagine Entertainment. It's not until 2012 when Jagger, who, at least in my mind, is hanging out poolside when all this happens, finds the latest revision for that Butterworth script. With his push, Brian Grazer restarts efforts to get the ball rolling on the film, starting with a controversial move. And the Oscar goes to Octavia Spencer. <laughs> Thank you, Academy, for putting me with the hottest guy in the room. Um. One year earlier in 2011, Hollywood was shocked when The Help, a crowd-pleasing adaptation of the novel of the same name, was released in the dead of summer only to go on to score acting nominations for each of its main actresses. Suddenly, director Tate Taylor, who'd only made one film prior to this, is one of the hottest names in Hollywood. And with production finally restarting on Get On Up, he quickly becomes a top choice for both the production company and Brown's estate. So in late 2012, Spike Lee is fired from the film, a project that he'd been connected to for well over half a decade. This spurs a ton of outcry from movie blogs, particularly by black writers who argued that replacing Hollywood's most famous black director with a white man to tell the story of James Brown was, at best, a bad look, and at worst, outright racism. A year later, as production ramped up on the film, Brian Grazer would explain the decision. 
While he'd largely ignored the anger from internet blogs, he cited a complicated rights issue as the reason Taylor was hired. Basically, Spike Lee was James Brown's choice, but once he was no longer alive, the decision became a whole lot more complicated, with a lot more voices in the room. Whether that's a good explanation is really up to you, but it's tough not to imagine Lee's version of this movie, especially after eventually seeing how the director would handle biopics with movies like Black Klansman. With a director in place, all that was left was to find the right talent to play Brown. If there's one thing the rockstar biopic boom of the 2000s proved, it was that everything came down to the lead performance, no matter how rough around the edges your film was. If you had a star actor doing their best in the lead role, you would win over some critics. In August of 2013, a year before Get On Up would hit theater screens, Universal announced Chadwick Boseman had won the role. Boseman was still relatively unknown in Hollywood, having just made a splash earlier that year for his performance as Jackie Robinson in 42. For most of the 2000s, Boseman had focused his career on stage in New York, before moving to LA to get into movies. Though he got some regular work in television and directed his own short films, it wasn't until 42 that he really broke through. I don't need to tell you that Bozeman was a once-in-a-generation talent. It didn't matter whether he was playing Jackie Robinson or James Brown or Black Panther or Levy Green in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Bozeman crushed every single role he was given. Although he wasn't the only actor in contention, in retrospect, it's impossible to imagine another performer bringing what he delivered in this role. To nail down Brown's iconic voice, Bozeman worked with a vocal coach, while also working through five-hour dance rehearsals every day before production to pick up his moves. Although the actor performed some singing, live recordings of Brown were primarily used throughout the movie, delivering an accurate portrayal of the singer's music without resorting to studio tracks. Get On Up was shot throughout the tail end of 2013 in Mississippi, set for a summer 2014 release. Compared to the projects that would come after, it sounds like a fairly straightforward and simple shoot, one without much controversy surrounding it. And although it wouldn't resurrect the genre from the dead, looking back on it, it's one of the most important stepping stones to getting this particular type of film back to where it is today. Oh. <gasps> Sit down! Sit down, man! Sit! Me and a son in a... I want each and every one of you to imagine he's in the church right now. Now, today's sermon may be good, but that's something else on your mind. You realize you got to take a shit real bad. And you don't want to do it in the church house, no, sir. So you just sit there, think about getting home to your own toilet, your own master bath. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, you you gotta take a shit. I'll give Get On Up this. It has a lot of ideas on what to do to reinvent and reinvigorate Rockstar biopics for a new decade. And it all starts with that opening scene. Ray and Walk the Line suffered, in part, from their reluctance to show their star character at the lowest low of their lives. Get On Up opens with James Brown smoking PCP, driving his pickup truck to a building he owns, and screaming at a terrified room of would-be insurance agents in training about 
someone taking a number two in his bathroom, finally accidentally firing a shotgun into the ceiling. If that's not a low, I don't know what is. The opening minutes of Get On Up make it seem like Taylor and his crew are about to take us on a wild, drug-laden journey filled with flashbacks to Vietnam and fourth wall breaks designed to involve the audience in the action. And the truth is, unfortunately, a lot less interesting. Get On Up has a million ideas on what to do with the Rockstar biopic to resurrect it, to breathe new life into a stale formula. It's just too scared to commit to any of Let's start with those opening minutes. Beginning with the origin for Brown's 1988 car chase sure seems like a fascinating framing device for this film, especially when you've established the main character isn't just on drugs. He's aware of the audience. Y'all cats might not own my record. But you can bet your bottom dollar every record you got got a piece of me in them. Ain't nobody out here today rapping, singing, whatever they're doing. Ain't been touched by James Brown. So, so, uh, Mule, you did right by yourself. And ain't no other way to live. You understand me? Yes, sir. Oh, shit, Charlie Mule. I got to go. This is pre-Deadpool, pre-Adam McKay abandons comedy and becomes a Hollywood truth teller. Fourth wall breaks aren't super common in major mainstream film, certainly not among the older crowd likely to be drawn to a James Brown biopic. To turn what could be a carbon copy of Ray or Rock the Line into something more experimental, something more exciting and attention-grabbing, it's a valiant effort. And it's with this energy that we're teleported back to the Vietnam War, as Brown gets permission from the president to entertain the troops before his plane is nearly shot down. From there, we're off, seemingly on a freewheeling journey through space and time with James Brown as our guide. But the film can't help itself. By the time we're a third of the way into this movie, we've already fallen back into all of the old habits, with the rest of the film largely playing out in a linear timeline. Now that's not necessarily a problem. No one is asking for the Rockstar biopic to be an out-of-order, experimental art flick. But if you're going to try something, you should at least see it through. And that goes double for the fourth wall breaking narration. One of the best scenes in the movie is when Bozeman gets up from a table at a restaurant, leaving Dan Aykroyd yammering on in extended sports metaphors when describing promoters. You get my point, right? Okay, listen up, people. We go to the young cats, the hunger cats, the late night cats. There's a 20-year-old white DJ from Richmond, Virginia who ain't getting paid nothing. He only doing it because he loves the music. We go to him and we ask him if he want to be the sole James Brown promoter for the Richmond show for a percentage. He gonna say, Are you kidding me? Do you know how much they pay me? Uh-huh. Between nothing and fifty dollars a week. But he loved my music. Oh, he dig himself some James Brown. And he got a microphone and a turntable and four hours ahead of time to kid. Screw Payola. See? Brown goes on to address the audience directly, explaining how Payola works in the music industry and how he was able to get his shows promoted on the radio directly. Bozeman jumps from frame to frame, in the restaurant, at the radio station, existing out of time and with the movie-going crowd. He returns to his table, food in hand, revealing Aykroyd hadn't taken a breath. It's a riveting scene. Bozeman's electric and the editing feels great. 
To be honest, it's better than any of Adam McKay's explainer videos built into The Big Short or Vice or Don't Look Up. And it hits theaters a full year earlier than the first of those movies. But again, this is a mass appeal film, and so it can't completely break out of its standard biopic formula. Brown does break the fourth wall a handful of other times, mostly for Jim from the office style glimpses into the camera, but it never returns to this sort of gimmick again. It's easy to imagine a film that leaned heavily into either of these ideas, but instead, the majority of it plays out pretty straight. These flourishes are just enough to make Good On Up stand out in a crowd filled with typical rags to riches stories, and while it's not entirely successful, it seemed like a film designed to lay the groundwork for future projects to build on its successes and learn from its mistakes. It took nearly a decade, but someone finally leaned into the fourth wall breaking, the absurdity of stardom, the crazy editing techniques, and the fever dream insanity that the story of James Brown promised. We caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I love you too much, baby. Why can't you see? For what it's worth, I think Boz Lerman's 2022 film Elvis could take up an entire episode of this show. At close to three hours, the film is as sprawling and epic as any rock star biopic has ever been. Give or take Oliver Stone's The Doors. Although the film suffers in its third act, falling victim to every cliche we've covered so far, those first two hours are a celebration of excess, in every way matching Elvis's personality. From the way early Elvis fans talk about his whiteness to the sitcom-style opening credits montage that somehow covers the star's entire Hollywood rise and fall, to everything happening with Tom Hanks' accent, it is, in every way imaginable, the most movie. And, unfortunately, it makes Get On Up seem even more like a middle-of-the-road adaptation than ever before, despite covering one of the most electric personalities to ever take the stage. Bozeman obviously crushes the performance. It's a far better performance than Fox's efforts in Ray, managing to capture the cartoonishness and outlandishness of its star, without ever feeling like an impersonation. Bozeman really does melt away in the role, leaving only James Brown in his place. But the Oscar attention had faded from the genre after a string of flops and mediocre indie drops, and that left Bozeman's portrayal on the cutting room floor. Get On Up arrived on August 1st, 2014, opening alongside his future Marvel co-stars in Guardians of the Galaxy. Naturally, the film's presence as a late summer drop left it ignored by awards bodies. It wasn't even seen as a snub left out of roundups by Variety and Entertainment Weekly and IndieWire. The Rockstar biopic had been out of the spotlight for so long it was impossible for the first crack at it back to push on through, even with Taylor's previous film, The Help, earning four nominations and a win at the Oscars three years earlier. Thankfully, the box office results weren't as merciless. Get On Up's $30 million budget was one of the genre's highest since Walk the Line a decade earlier, and although it only managed to gross $33 million at the box office, a mild flop by Hollywood accounting standards, 
it was a hell of a lot better than the indies that ended the genre in the late 2000s. And look, part of this was Marvel's fault. I mean, no one expected the Guardians of the Galaxy to break through as it did. Its $94 million opening set an August box office record at the time. Lucy, the Scarlett Johansson brain pill movie, also overperformed that summer. It opened the week before to number one, and on good word of mouth, managed to hold strong against Guardians in the number two slot. Even against these odds, Get On Up managed to make a name for itself. It likely wasn't the returns Imagine had imagined when the film originally went into pre-production during the 2000s, but it was more than enough to signal interest in these sorts of movies again. Turns out that was great news for the folks at New Line Cinema, who had their own Rockstar biopic in the works, scheduled for next summer. Up until now, we've covered stories featuring not just the stars of yesterday, but the stars of yesterday's yesterday. Johnny Cash, Ray Charles, these were people who ruled the radio airwaves 40, 50, 60 years before their movies entered production, making it a hell of a lot easier for studios to ignore some of those rough patches. Maybe the stars of these movies had a drinking problem, who used to say they weren't abusive towards their loved ones. At the end of the day, you could effectively paper over those issues. You were still telling the truth. Just a different version of the truth. And it sure as hell helped that they were all dead. What would you do if you were in a situation where things weren't so easy? A situation where the stars weren't just still alive, but they were at the top of the game. Legends that had come to prominence in the age of cable news, a pre-internet dawn that nevertheless allowed their baggage to be known far more publicly than they'd otherwise like. I'm expressing with my full capabilities And now I'm living in correctional facilities Cause some don't agree with how I do this I get straight and meditate like a Buddhist That's the problem Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, and Tamika Woods Wright faced when they set out to produce a film telling the story of N.W.A., the breakthrough late 80s group that put gangster rap on the map in a very public way. Although the trio announced plans in 2009 for a film, just as the genre was truly beginning to dip in both respectability and financial status, the problems facing what would eventually become Straight Outta Compton started well before then. Ice Cube's a regular player in Hollywood, both as a leading man and as a producer and screenwriter. The idea to create a story based on his life and the lives of his closest early contributors probably seems like a no-brainer. But if you're adapting the stories of your friends from 20 years ago, getting them to sign off on the rights both to their personalities and their music is a challenge. Like so many of these projects, Ice Cube began thinking about what would become Straight Outta Compton a decade before anything was officially produced. Dr. Dre, reigning in the early 2000s as one of the top producers and kingmakers, especially hot off the success of Eminem, said no. Now, if you ask Dre, his initial refusal comes down to a lack of willingness to touch his legacy. What would happen if a film telling his rise from nothing made him look embarrassed or covered some of the more controversial aspects of his youth? In interviews, Dr. Dre seems like the kind of man who wants to leave the sins of his past behind, having settled down long ago. Why would he want to bring them back to the surface, displayed 
all over the world for everyone to consider. There was also the shadow of death hanging over everyone's heads. Easy e the initial star of NWA whose personality and unique voice was a major factor in the band blowing up, had died from HIV AIDS in 1995. That left his widow, Tamika Woods Wright, in charge of the rights to NWA's library, its legacy, and Easy es personal image. The earliest versions of Straight Outta Compton focused primarily on Easy e written by Alan Wankus and S. Lay Savage, who retain a story-by credit on the final film. When Ice Cube agreed to sign on as a producer in the mid-aughts, though, that script was quickly expanded. Another screenwriter, Andrea Burloff, came on to do rewrites, handpicked by Ice Cube himself, and it turned the movie into a two-hander. The stories of Eazy-E and Ice Cube. Only then did Dr. Dre find himself ready to sign on the project. Coming aboard as a producer, the film had now grown into a sprawling epic following three men on three different career trajectories. All that was left now was to find funding. And unfortunately, that would prove harder than you'd probably imagine. Not only was the group facing the growing stigma against rockstar biopics, but they also had to overcome the image that much of the public, including current Hollywood execs, had seen of them two decades earlier. The group's name itself is controversial. Niggers with Attitude, known as NWA, has taunted law enforcement with its lyrics urging violence against police. But it is the group's sexually explicit lyrics that attracted attention from the Attorney General's office. Lyrics too explicit to be repeated here. Lyrics considered obscene by the authorities in Minnesota. This was the group that got big off Fuck the Police, a group that got a letter from the FBI warning them against threatening law enforcement, no matter how justified the members were in their anger. A group that had Christian groups and right-wing media and goddamn tipper gore against them. These are a few of the rock musicians criticized by Tennessee Senator Albert Gore's wife, Tipper. Our songs about glorifying incest, their songs about rape, thrill killing, uh, sadomasochism. There's a song that goes, quote, not a woman but a whore, I can taste the hate. Well now I'm killing you, watch your face turning blue, unquote. Their debut album was one of the first to feature the parental advisory sticker on the front of it, a design they would actually later reuse for the theatrical Straight Outta Compton poster. Obviously, we know the legacy of Tipper Gore in the Parents Music Resource Center. If anything, bringing attention to the lyrical content the group so desperately wanted listeners to avoid just made it easier to sell albums, even as radio stations refused to play songs from targeted artists. Many of these musicians are still making music, and those that aren't still have songs enjoyed by millions. The PMRC, meanwhile, disbanded in the mid-90s, and beyond being an artifact that still has some relevance in modern culture wars, has largely come and gone. But that sense of controversy, that social stigma, still surrounds Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and all of NWA. Fuck the Police never stopped being a controversial song, and studios were unwilling at the time to risk their image on this sort of project getting made. Georgia. Georgia. Then Ray happened. I hear the train coming. And then walked the line. And suddenly, 
the idea of an NWA biopic wasn't as risky. In fact, it could end up with Oscar Gold. With Dre and Woods right on board, Ice Cube brought the project to New Line Cinema, who were willing to give it a green light. Just as the go-ahead was announced, the studio that brought you hits like Lord of the Rings merged with Warner Brothers and would no longer be operated as an independently run studio. WB offered Ice Cube $15 million to make the movie, but were unwilling to spend a dime more. Their reasoning? Movies with black leads didn't sell well overseas. The three bailed on the idea of WB producing the project, and despite some talks about potential directors, with Boys in the Hood director John Singleton and Friday director F. Gary Gray both in discussions, the movie, as with most biopics at the time, phased away into development hell. It wouldn't be until 2013 that Compton got an official green light, this time from Universal, whose chief exec Donna Langley recognized the cultural footprint of rap. The trio got $29 million to produce Straight Outta Compton, nearly twice as much money as what was offered by Warner Brothers. With one last rewrite from Jonathan Herman and an officially selected director in F. Gary Gray, the film could finally start rolling. Set for a 2015 release date. I heard you've been spending a lot of time at your auntie house. How's the couch life? Yeah, my woman and my baby living there is hard, man. But you know, everybody can't do what you do. Really, what I do getting played out, Dre. Where the money at? But why you gotta be so ruthless, cuz? I'll make a few changes. Where you think you're going? I'm just trying to get home. That's my you need to get back in the house or I will ruin your night. I gotta talk to my moms like that. Straight out of Compton is far less strange and experimental than Get On Up had tried to be a year ago bringing itself closer in tone to Ray or Rock the Line. There's no fourth wall breaks here, unless you count the unfortunate and tedious by Felicia scene that felt dated in 2015 and feels like a fossil seven years later. On the surface, it's a film focused on telling the story of NWA, a breakthrough group that is essential to understanding the history of rap. We don't get Snoop Dogg shouting out Johnny Cash without NWA's prominence on the scene in the late 80s. Here's the problem. Straight Outta Compton isn't telling a story about NWA. It's telling three stories, serving as biopics for Easy e and Dr. Dre and Ice Cube. NWA's story is over before the halfway point in the movie, as Ice Cube departs to focus on his solo career and Dre teams up with Suge Knight, both members frustrated over Jerry Heller underpaying them. From there, the film really splits into three movies. Easy es health and financial concerns, Ice Cube's rise into fame and movie stardom, and Dr. Dre's solo success with The Chronic, all while nurturing superstars like Snoop Dogg and Tupac. And obviously, with three stars as big as those, it's bound to double down on the recognizable names here. Audiences know Dre and Ice Cube, even if they aren't fans of their music. Oh, there you are, Dre. How'd you get this laptop to sound so good? New HP Beats Audio. What's that? HP Beats Audio. Oh, you've been working with HP? Yeah, we tore the computer apart, rebuilt it so my music can sound like it's supposed to. Finally! 
Hi, Mike. The Beats by Dre brand was inescapable throughout the end of the 2000s and into the 2010s, and Ice Cube's film career means he's expanded well beyond his initial reach with rap. Easy e is probably the least known of the three because of when he died, but he is undoubtedly the face of NWA, which is why the film opens with him and not the other two performers. But if you're going to focus on those three players, you're inevitably going to leave NWA behind in the rearview mirror. That's what happens in this movie, giving MC Ren and DJ Yella a small amount of screen time and giving Arabian Prince, the sixth member of the group, a non-speaking cameo during the album cover shoot. It's hard not to notice that those three members aren't credited as producers on the project. Unfortunately, the storytelling harms its star players too. Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, Easy e These players are all big enough to have stories of their own. Because you're pushing all three together into one film to ostensibly tell the story of NWA, you need to compress the amount of time you're spending with all of them. After all, by the early 90s, the trio has essentially split up, with each member doing their own thing. Unfortunately, this results in scenes that play out like winks and nods to the audience. For example, Ice Cube's venture into film is a huge part of his career, starting with 1991's Boys in the Hood. Oh, we got a problem here? We got a problem here? We got a problem, nigga? A John Singleton film that takes its name from Easy e in N.W.A.'s first single. The role of Doughboy was specifically written for Ice Cube, and he garnered critical attention and praise for that role. That gives him the opportunity to write and star in Friday a few years later, directed by, of course, F. Gary Gray. In Straight Outta Compton, we get a single scene of Ice Cube writing Friday, and it plays more like an acknowledgement to the audience than anything else. You got knocked the fuck out. Hey, baby. Hey, baby. How's Friday coming? This shit is funny. I'm feeling it, though. Hmm. What page are you on? 100. I'm not going too much longer, though. Baby, come here, look. Seconds later, we watch Easy e drive by a billboard for Dre's The Chronic, already a massive hit. Look, obviously these two scenes serve to show the success Dre and Ice Cube have achieved after splitting off of N.W.A. In another version of this film where we watch everything through his eyes, it's easy to see this hitting hard. Here's Easy e slowly losing his health and his finances, while his former bandmates have hit career highs he could not have imagined. Instead, it ends up feeling like the story is just checking boxes as it runs through its lengthy history. Hey! Much has been made about how Strand Outta Compton manages to hide and disguise some of its members' most notable controversies, including completely leaving Michelle A out of the story altogether and avoiding her relationship with Dr. Dre, whom the singer has alleged was physically abusive. I do think the film's main problem is bigger than this, although wanting to avoid certain topics playing for a massive mainstream audience is no doubt part of it. These projects are always changing history, they're always covering up some part of the worst truths about our musical heroes. The story of N.W.A. is the story of Easy e and I do think the writers behind Straight Outta Compton recognize this. The film comes to a dramatic close once he passes, save for one final scene showing Dre quitting Death Row Records to start Aftermath. I mean, that's another example of the film unable to help itself. It needs to tell these three stories, but it doesn't have the space or the bandwidth to dedicate the time to it. 
This is a film where the theatrical poster highlights the names of NWA where the actors' names usually go. It's telling audiences that these five members, these are the real stars of the film. But the project doesn't hold up to that promise. In another world, a world where Universal is prepared for Straight Outta Compton to smash box office records, this movie serves as the opening of a franchise, a trilogy focusing on the history of gangster rap with Easy e Ice Cube, and Dr. Dre, the protagonist. Each of these three members deserve their own movie, and NWA as a whole deserves more time dedicated to it. Instead, we end up with a project that, while undoubtedly entertaining, feels like the overstuffed biopics of the previous decade. With Get On Up, we got risks, we got ideas. Straight Outta Compton is too busy trying to tie up three movies worth of real-life events to try anything new, and that, when paired with its massive success, is going to push the genre back into its pre-walk-hard habits. It's not rare for box office tracking to be off the mark, with films either under- or overperforming expectations by millions of dollars. It is, however, rare for analysts to be as wrong as they were about Straight Outta Compton. Initially, tracking suggested the film would probably hit about $25 million its opening weekend, something that would generally be considered a hit compared to recent Rockstar biopics. Get On Up was only a year before, with both films opening in August. While there wasn't a Marvel mega-hit to compete against, no one initially expected much more than a solid mid-budget hit. Slowly, these same analysts began to predict larger returns. Forget 25 million, think 35, 40, even 45. They were all wrong. That $25 million projection straight out of Compton made more than that on its opening day, delivering a $60 million opening weekend and setting a new record for the genre. It ends up closing at 161 million in the US with another $40 million made worldwide for a total of $201 million. At the time, it was the highest-grossing Rockstar biopic ever. But we'll get to that. Even better, it finally, finally ended the drought of awards attention. While it didn't get Best Picture consideration and none of the performers were given nods in the acting categories, it did scoop up a nom for Best Original Screenplay. And while it didn't win, it certainly cemented a fact that had become too obvious. The Rockstar biopic was back. And it was bigger than ever. Only one question remained. Which film would finally ride the wave back to massive box office returns and Oscar gold? And if you went to a theater in the fall of 2018, you probably already know which project made it. Hell, based on its earnings... You probably sat in the audience, stomping and clapping along with the actors. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday. You got mud on your face, you big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place, singing, We will, we The story of how Bohemian Rhapsody got to the big screen is about as messy as any major Hollywood production can be. So strap in. There's a lot to cover.
In 2010, Queen's guitarist Brian May, the guy with the long curly hair, announced a biopic following the band was in the works, with Frost Nixon writer Peter Morgan attached to work on the script. Making it a little more serious than any of the multitude of biopic announcements that often fall through, disappearing into development hell, was the name attached to the project. I like you. I like sex. It's nice. Sasha Baron Cohen has only had a handful of opportunities to prove his dramatic chops on television, but there's no doubt he's good at disappearing into a role. May, along with drummer Brian Taylor, plan to oversee the film's production as consultants, with the former promising to keep themselves out of it as much as possible. Less than a year later, May was back in the news, again reassuring fans that Cohen was perfect for the role. But he was growing concerned about the direction of the project. Despite claims that production was set to begin in 2011, there still wasn't a director attached. Cohen was pushing hard to play the role, but May and the rest of the band wanted a family-friendly retelling of their story, not the tell-all R-rated project Cohen had in mind. Two years of silence passed, with few updates or any follow-up information regarding its status. Finally, Sasha Baron Cohen announced he'd left the project in July of 2013, with May stressing it was on good terms. Reports at the time weren't as charitable. Deadline cited creative conflicts between Cohen and the band, which had final approval on both screenplay and director choices. Despite May seemingly serving as the spearhead of the film, Cohen was the one who brought in Peter Morgan to write the script, all while pitching directors as high-profile as David Fincher in a pre-Cats Tom Hooper on picking up the project. With Cohen gone, the Queen biopic, which still lacked a title, was rudderless, a ship in the middle of an ocean without any sense of direction. Years later, as Bohemian Rhapsody was slowly, finally starting to take shape, Cohen would talk about the experience on the Howard Stern show. My first meeting, I should have never carried on because a member of the band, I won't say who, said, he said, you know, this is such a great movie because it's got such an amazing thing happens in the middle of the movie. Uh I go, what happens in the middle of the movie? He goes, uh, you know, Freddie dies. I go, the movie. I go, oh, right. I go, all right. <laughs> so you mean it's a bit like Pulp Fiction? You know, the end is the middle and the middle is the end. Right, I go, all right, right that's right. really... He goes, no, no, no. Normal movie. <laughs> I go, so wait a minute, what happens in the second half of the movie? He said, well, you know, we see how the band carries on from strength to strength. Oh. And I said, listen, I go, not one person is going to see a movie <laughs> where the lead character... <laughs> Dies from eight, and then you carry on. That would be just the craziest movie. Guys, we've got to carry on. Just wait till you see the movie I do about you, Howard. Cohen looks so much like Freddie Mercury that, at the time, it was impossible to imagine anyone filling the role. Ben Wishaw, best known right now as the voice of Paddington, signed on to the project later that year, with Peter Morgan still tapped to write in Dexter Fletcher, an actor-turned-indie director, to direct. Fletcher wouldn't last on the project, though. This time, creative differences with producer Graham King prompted the filmmaker to leave. Wishaw began to speak openly in the press about problems with the film's production and scripting issues, prompting him to leave at the end of 2014. Once again, the film was left without any key components, and despite rumors in 2015 that either Cohen or Wishaw were discussing rejoining, nothing came from those efforts. Five long years into pre-production and the band wasn't any closer to getting their story on the big screen. But by the end of 2015, there was a shred of good news for Queen. 
Rockstar biopics weren't just back, they were bigger than ever. Straight Outta Compton may have covered a newer group of musicians than this particular band, but Queen had held on to its popularity for 40 years now, and Bohemian Rhapsody in particular was a massive hit among demographics of all ages. If there was ever a time to strike while the iron was hot, it was now. The team brought on a new screenwriter in Anthony McCartan, who'd gained Oscar attention the year prior for his Theory of Everything script. McCartan sat down and performed interviews with May and Taylor to better learn the history of the band and to shape the screenplay to come. The project was also finally given a working title, Bohemian Rhapsody. In retrospect, seems obvious enough. Although the producers were still hoping Ben Wishaw would return to the role, it wasn't until a year later that the final pieces of the puzzle would fall into place. Although Sony had had the rights to pick up the project if they liked the script, 20th Century Fox would eventually scoop up Bohemian Rhapsody in late 2016, alongside a new star and director. Rami Malek, who'd garnered plenty of attention for his role on Mr. Robot, would portray Queen Singer. Meanwhile, Brian Singer, director of The Usual Suspects, several X-Men movies, and Superman Returns, signed on to helm the film. Now, diving deep into the Brian Singer of it all is probably too heavy of a topic for this particular podcast, but it has to be addressed on some level. X-Men Days of Future past director Brian Singer was recently accused of sexual abuse, and now he's finally speaking out in regards to the claims. Singer is brought into the project in a pre-Me Too world, but there's plenty of noise about this man already. Prior to the premiere of his 2014 film, X-Men Days of Future Past, Singer had been sued and accused in a civil lawsuit of sexually assaulting a minor. Several additional lawsuits and allegations followed throughout the next half a decade, culminating in a 2019 report in The Atlantic with four more allegations of sexual assault. Even in 2016, as production on Bohemian Rhapsody is finally starting to fall into place, it's worth noting how out in the open these accusations were. Days of Future Past had faced backlash in 2014 over these claims, yet Singer had already completed and released an additional film, X-Men Apocalypse, in the intervening time. Again, this is before the Me Too movement, so it's unsurprising to see Hollywood give yet another chance to a man with a background like Singer. However, there was also additional noise about the man's onset behavior, with some wondering why in hell you would give him any new chances to direct. Singer was known for being erratic during film production, dating back to the original 2000 X-Men film. Apocalypse, which had just arrived in theaters a few months earlier and was also produced by 20th Century Fox, was a filming disaster, leading up to a 10-day stretch in which Brian Singer disappeared from set due to health concerns. According to an interview Olivia Munn gave with Variety in 2020, Singer claimed to suffer from a thyroid issue that required him to fly home from Montreal, where they'd been shooting, to see his doctor in LA. The director told the cast and crew to continue acting as if he was there, but without the filmmaker, production spiraled. Nevertheless, May and Taylor gave him the green light to jump on the project after facing a barrage of texts and calls from the director about his interest. Although 20th Century Chair Stacy Snyder was concerned about reports from the Apocalypse set, her and Vice Chair Emma King allowed the director to move forward after delivering two commands in a sit-down with singer and producer Graham King. Don't break the law, and show up to work every day. 
Now, it's worth noting that Singer has denied nearly every allegation against him, whether it's the sexual assault claims or regarding his behavior in the workplace. That said, the amount of claims by cast and crew working around him is overwhelming. Reports suggest Singer's behavior was off from the get-go. The film cinematographer, Tom Siegel, would often step in to shoot instead, with Singer leaving after claiming to be exhausted. Making matters worse was the amount of makeup and prosthetics required for Rami Malek to look the part. He'd get in the makeup chair at 6.30am, only for Singer to not show up to set. Actor Tom Hollander, who had been cast as the band's manager, even went as far as to quit the project in the middle of filming, only to be convinced to return days later. With a few weeks to go on filming, two massive events occurred that resulted in the dramatic and very public firing of Brian Singer. First, the director got in a fight with Rami Malek, resulting in Singer throwing a piece of equipment across set. Malek filed a complaint to 20th Century Fox, alerting the higher-ups at the studio that his behavior had once again slipped to substandard, immature, and unprofessional status. But with filming nearly over, the crew was convinced to push on. Days before Thanksgiving, Singer told the studio that he'd be returning home, and not just for the holiday. The director, who was also facing renewed criticism and anger towards his sexual assault allegations as the Me Too movement began to peak, requested weeks to rest up from exhaustion and to care for his sick mother. Although Snyder told him no, Singer returned home, and production was shut down on December 1st. Despite his claims, the director didn't return to New Jersey, where his mother lives. Instead, he'd been spotted in L.A. just as 20th Century Fox made their decision. This accusation comes just days after Singer was fired as director of the upcoming Queen biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody. But that apparently had nothing to do with these allegations. Instead, it's reported he was ousted due to clashes with the film star, Rami Malek. Years after turning down the project, Dexter Fletcher returned to take over directing duties for the last month of shooting, with production resuming on December 15th. It was a gig that would help him land Rocket Man just a few months later. Production was completed within the month without much noise or controversy to speak of. Due to rules with the Directors Guild, Fletcher was not allowed to be credited for his work behind the camera, with Singer's name kept as the sole director of the film. The DGA didn't stop 20th Century from stripping Singer of his producer credit, though, and Fletcher instead was credited as an executive producer. To date, Brian Singer has not worked on any additional films, nor does he have any upcoming projects in the works. If Get On Up tried riffing on the usual biopic formula, and Straight Outta Compton was an overstuffed exercise in storytelling. Bohemian Rhapsody is a full-on return to the tropes parodied in Walk Hard. Despite the film arriving in theaters more than a decade after Jake Kasdan's genre deconstruction, Bohemian Rhapsody manages to carry on like nothing's changed. A film that could have been released in 2008 with few, if any, changes. In some way, it's a response to films like Get On Up or the Beach Boys biopic Love and Mercy. These films, which had tried to question how we tell stories about the artists we love, got a single answer from Bohemian Rhapsody's success. Stick to the path. 
To be completely honest, I hate this movie. It's the worst film of the three we've talked about in this episode, and it's probably the worst film we've talked about for this entire show. It looks bland and uninspired. Rami Malek's performance is cartoonish and over-the-top. It focuses way too much on the other bandmates who no one really cares about in the audience, and the portrayal of Freddie Mercury's HIV diagnosis is terrible. None of it works for me. It even fails to make me care about Freddie the person instead of Freddie the singer. To paraphrase the Royal Tenenbaums, we all know Freddie Mercury is not the world's most annoying man. But what this film presupposes is, what if he was? So sorry, my darling. Lost all track. You fired Reed without consulting us. You don't make decisions for the band. Well, I'm terribly sorry, dear. It's done. Besides, Miami will manage us. (laughs) Won't you, darling? Uh, I think about it. No. Are you high again? Well done. Columbo? You need to slow down, Fred. Oh, don't be such a bore. I'm here, aren't I? Are you? I don't care if you're shit-faced. As long as you can see. No, John, I don't want to play it. Then I'm all for it. What's that supposed to mean? I'm tired of the bloody anthems. I want the energy in the clubs. The bodies. I want to make people move. You mean disco? Drum loops. Synthesizers. If you say so. It's not us. Us? It's not Queen. Queen is whatever I say it is. The future framing device, the band breakup and reunion, the historical cameos, the improvisational making of a hit song. It's all here, and it's as exhausting as ever. At times, the film, anchored by Malik's performance, has all the gravitas of a Saturday Night Live sketch. Everything you need to know about his performance is wrapped up in the scene selected to show off his chops at the Oscars. Rami Malik, Bohemian Rhapsody. All he's doing is sitting at a piano, lip-syncing to Bohemian Rhapsody. The editing feels slapdash and rushed, with certain scenes bouncing between cuts so fast, it's enough to give you a headache. So why on earth is this the biggest rock star biopic film of all time? Why was this the project that revived the genre for good, guaranteeing us similar films for the foreseeable future? It's because Bohemian Rhapsody finally does what every single film before it failed to do. It gives the audience exactly what they're asking for. In between Malick's antics-based impersonation and a screenplay that focuses far too much on the band outside of Freddie Mercury is a chance for viewers to revisit all of their favorite songs from one of the most famous bands of all time. Few songs are played completely in full, but unlike in Walk the Line and Ray and even Straight Outta Compton, they're treated with the flash and panache of a music video. Double shots, zooms, animated transitions help to bring the rockstar biopic to its final form, a medium in which a dozen of your favorite songs can be jammed out to on the big screen. It's a greatest hits album masquerading as a prestige movie. And it all culminates in exactly what I asked for from Walk the Line. 
the Live Aid concert played nearly in full throughout the last 20 minutes. Bohemian Rhapsody wraps up its story well before the credits roll. As Mercury and the boys step foot onto that stage, theatergoers are transported back in time to a concert experience that many of us were either born after or too young to remember, let alone attend. Live Aid was a monumental experience watched by 40% of the world, with all-star lineups in both the UK and in Philadelphia, the type of lineup Coachella would kill to recreate in 2022. In the theatrical version of Bohemian Rhapsody, viewers watch as the titular track, Radio Gaga, Hammer to Fall, and We Are the Champions are played back to back. It is a shorter track list than what really happened, although a full recreation of the performance is included on home media for anyone to boot up and watch. And to be honest, it's spectacular. It, it's the sole reason to see the movie, especially on the big screen. Sure, you can find copies of the actual performance on YouTube and the recording is, of course, indisposable, but the recreated copy transports viewers onto the stage in angles and in places and in a quality that a 1985 TV recording never could. For the last 20 minutes of the movie, you are with the band, standing off to the sidelines with the rest of the characters, watching as they leave their stamp on the world forever. This is the success of Bohemian Rhapsody. It recognizes what the audience wants, and rather than fight back against those demands, it gives in completely. You won't find a challenging look at one of your favorite singers here. Sure, the character is conflicted, he's forced to overcome obstacles, and as always, pushes those closest to him away. But Freddie Mercury, at least in Bohemian Rhapsody, is just like Ray and Johnny Cash before him all the way back to Billie Holiday struggling with her addiction. Even if the star's ending isn't happy, the cinematic journey sure is. At $52 million, Bohemian Rhapsody is far from the cheapest blockbuster biopic to land on the silver screen. But positioned for a holiday release, it was all but a guaranteed hit.
Premiering in the U.S. right at the start of November, Bohemian Rhapsody marked the first real attempt to position a rock star biopic for Oscar gold, returning to the genre to the same place in the calendar that Ray and Walk the Line had received a decade earlier. And with Thanksgiving and Christmas ahead of it, there's no doubt that 20th century executives had high hopes for the film's potential. I'm not sure anyone expected it to be as seismic as it turned out to be, though. Much like Straight Outta Compton, Bohemian Rhapsody overperformed expectations, with analysts initially expecting a $30 million opening weekend. Instead, the film opened to $51 million, not quite breaking the record set by Compton three years earlier, but starting the film out on a strong note. With Thanksgiving weekend just a few weeks later, Bohemian Rhapsody just kept printing money, only dipping 39% in its second weekend and taking a minuscule 13% dip during the holidays. Throughout December and into the new year, the film continued to gross a few million dollars each weekend, occasionally improving on whatever it had made the week before. By December 1st, it had already beat Compton domestically, ending its run in North America with more money than F. Gary Gray's film had made worldwide. Bohemian Rhapsody grossed $216 million domestically and nearly $700 million internationally, totaling $900 and $11 million worldwide. For our listeners who wouldn't call themselves box office nerds, to put that in perspective, it was the sixth highest grossing film of 2018, beating out more traditional blockbusters like Venom and Mission Impossible Fallout. Currently stands as the 62nd highest grossing film of all time, without adjusting for inflation, ahead of three Harry Potters, more than half of the movies in the MCU, in Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Naturally, awards attention followed suit, especially for Rami Malek. Never mind my opinion of him, awards voters loved his impression of Freddie Mercury, leading him right to the Oscar just as Jamie Foxx before him. At the Academy Awards, Bohemian Rhapsody was up for five awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Malik, and three technical awards, Film Editing, Sound Mixing, and Sound Editing. It swept all of its categories with the exception of Picture, marking the most wins of the night. Unsurprisingly, Brian Singer was not nominated for Best Picture. So, after 50 years, what's left for this genre? The Rockstar biopic seems as cemented as ever in our cultural landscape. If it can survive a film as scathing as Walk Hard, it can survive anything. For better or worse, Bohemian Rhapsody acts as the ultimate example of what a Rockstar biopic is. A retelling of the folk legends of our time. Musicians and singers and superstars who faced hard times and whose art survives the test of time. We, the audience, don't want or need accuracy. We aren't asking for every life event, every milestone and setback to be portrayed on screen. We aren't even asking to be challenged. We're asking for a party, a two and a half hour music video that combines our favorite songs with some of the stories behind them. We want to dance in the aisles of our local theater, cheering when our hero walks on stage for the first time and crying when they leave it all behind. We want to walk out smiling, no matter how serious the film gets. 
We want our rock stars the way we remember them. As geniuses. As trailblazers. As legends. And goddamn, if these films, above all else, no matter their faults, don't give us that. So what's next for the Rockstar biopic? You'll have to head to a theater to find out. Don't Explain is written and edited by and starring Will Saddleberg and executive produced by Justin Robert Young. Credit to The Wall Street Journal, IndieWire, The New Yorker, and The Hollywood Reporter, which, along with other contemporary news articles, retrospectives, and archived video, made for the bulk of our research. Dog and Pony Show Audio.